forgiven. Sin says guilty, Jesus' blood says forgiven. And we're thankful for that. Let's go to John, please, chapter number 14. John chapter 14 this morning. We're in a series we've been, we're going to journey for the next couple of weeks through John 13 uh, and then through chapter number 16. So 13, 14, 15, and 16. And as I shared with you last week, everything that's taking place in this passage is in the upper room. This is the, the Passover, the Last Supper, the very last moments, and Jesus spent them with his disciples. So on Sunday morning, we looked at the first part of John 13, and then on Wednesday night, we looked at the second part of John 13. And today, we come to the 14th chapter, and Jesus begins with some very encouraging words. Notice with me in John 14, verse number 1, the scriptures say this, Let not your heart be, what's the word? Troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Let's say that verse together. Can we try that together out loud? Begin. Ready? Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. We'll speak about that this morning. Let not your heart be troubled. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you that we have the ability to open the Bible, to look at what it says and what that means for us. I pray that you'd help me as I preach the message. I pray that you'd help us as a church to listen and receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Let not your heart be troubled. Now, it's interesting that the passage begins with that statement because what has just happened are some troubling statements that Jesus has made. Actually, a few and among them, one of the troubling statements that Jesus made just a few minutes earlier, because remember, if you weren't with us last week, you know that you're, you're joining right now in the middle of a conversation. You're joining in the middle of a scene that's been taking place. So it's Jesus and his 12 disciples, and they're sitting down to celebrate the Passover meal, but he says to the disciples, one of you is going to what? Betray me. He says, one of you is going to betray me. And that was troubling to the disciples. And we saw Judas leave in chapter number 13, so the betrayer has left. But that's not all he said. He said, one is going to betray me. But then he also said, I am going away, and you can't come with me. Now, for three years, they've barely been, they've barely left Jesus' side. And so now he says, one of you is going to betray me. He says, I'm going to leave and you can't follow me. And then he finishes, uh, he says a third troubling statement, and that is to Simon Peter. And he says, Peter, you are going to what? Deny me. One will betray me, I'm going to leave and you can't come, and Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, going through the mind of the apostles must be, what is happening? What is going on? And in fact, in preceding days, Jesus had been hinting at his impending death. He, he'd been making statements that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to be killed by the chief priests and the rulers. And so there's all of these troubling things happening, and it is among these troubling realities that Jesus gives them ultimate 
certainty, and ultimate security. When he says, let not your heart be what? Well, you just told us some troubling things. Well, Jesus told them realities. And not only in the lives of the disciples, but in our lives, in the world in which we live, we start very innocent as young children. And sometimes that is lost earlier than, than for some than others. But the fact is, there come times in our life as we grow where we realize that there are troubling realities in the world around us, are there not? I mean, we saw that this week in the, in the shooting that took place. We see it in, in other events that unfold around us. And whether it's on a national level or it's personal in our own lives, troubles that we encounter, there are troubling realities around us. And it's in that that Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now, there are troubling realities, but Jesus is going to point them to an ultimate certainty in himself. In the midst of the troubles, in the midst of the, of the darkness of the days that you may face, Jesus says, you can believe in me. You can trust in me. Now, as far as the application, that, those are the, that's the main thing I want us to see this morning. But there's also something about some truth that's being revealed, about some of theological importance in this passage. And that is what is also about to happen. I want you to notice this carefully, is Jesus is further revealing his deity in this passage. Jesus is further revealing that to the disciples that not only is he a man, but that the man that sits there with them at the table is God that he is God, that he is equal with the Father. Now, often, critics of Christianity have said, well, if Jesus is truly God, if Jesus is truly God, why didn't he just come out and say, announcement, I am God? Why didn't he say that? Yes or no, Jesus veiled, or and what I mean by veiled is he masked his deity, all throughout the three years. Is that true or false? It's true. He, he, he displayed it, but he did not often express, explicitly declare it. And that's important. And there's a reason for that. Why was that? Well, you're going to see in this passage, the main reason, I believe, was that if Jesus had come and he had said, I am God, what would have immediately happened in their religious context? What would have happened to him? Go ahead. They would have killed him immediately before they had seen him do a miracle, before they had, before they had listened to anything else that he had said. If Jesus had come on the scene, and in fact, he came so close to saying it explicitly that on a number of occasions, they almost did kill him. In Nazareth, they tried to kill him. Multiple times throughout the ministry of Christ, he comes so close to just explicitly saying, I am God. They knew what he was saying, but he would say it in such a way that he could take a step back. Why? Because Jesus was carefully revealing himself. And so that by the time he went to the cross and by the time of his resurrection, it would be undeniably clear 
that he was who he said he was. And in fact, it was his claim to deity that ultimately provoked the Pharisees and religious leaders to put Jesus to death. But there have always been those that would, that would attack the deity of Christ. Well, this passage, Jesus very, and again, this is not in a public setting. This is in a close, intimate set setting that Jesus declares his deity to his disciples. So I want you to see that as well. So that's the, the theological truth that's undergirding this whole passage, that Jesus is God and very God. Man and very man, God and very God. That's what the truth that undergirds this passage. But then the rich application is because of that, because of who Jesus is, you and I and the disciples can face the most troubling of circumstances. And we can say, though the world around me is troubled, my heart, I will not allow it to be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. There is an ultimate certainty in Christ. Well, I'll show you three Three points this morning, if you turn over in your notes and follow along with me. First of all, Jesus is going to reveal to them that he is their ultimate hope. Secondly, he's going to reveal that he is, provides for them ultimate meaning. And then I love the third point, there is ultimate evidence that backs all of this up. So first, first point, Jesus, our ultimate hope. Verse number one, we already read. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Let's read all four verses. Verse 2. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now, who does he now introduce? We begin with Jesus. He introduces God the Father at the end of verse 1 and verse 2. And he says, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go... And prepare a place for you, I will come again. Just a little news bulletin this morning. Jesus is coming again. There is a future date that Jesus Christ is going to return. I forget the, the context, but I was somewhere and there was a, new, a group of new believers and somebody spoke about the return of Christ. And I, I think it was a young woman who had just come to faith in Christ. She said, wait a minute. Jesus is coming back? He's coming back. Like, I, I know that, I, I know that, um, that he came once, and that if I trust him, I'm saved and I'll go to heaven, but you mean he's coming back to the earth again? That's, a, that's wonderful news for the world. Because, at, well, it's wonderful news ultimately. It's troubling news if you don't know Christ as your Savior. Because he's coming back to receive his own to himself, but to then judge the world. So you ought to be prepared for the return of Christ. But for those of us who know Jesus, this is what we call the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm going to prepare a place, and I'm going to come again for you, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, ye know, and the way ye know. It's interesting. He says, you know where I'm going, and you know how to get there. And we'll, we'll, that's kind of a transition, but going back to the first statement in this section, as we think about Jesus, our ultimate hope, he says to them, let not your heart be troubled, back in verse 1. He says to them, you believe in God, believe also in me. Now, I think we do this passage a disservice 
when we read back into it our 21st century circumstances. You say, what do you mean? I mean this. It's important to understand this the way that the original recipients would have understood it. We, we look at it this way. We say, hey, you're doing great. Or sometimes people say, hey, it's good that you believe in God. It's good to believe in God. And, 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 like that's the first step. The first step, believe in God, now believe in Jesus. But everyone believed in God when Jesus wrote this. It was, there, there was no debate over the existence of God. I think what, how we need to understand this is what he's saying to them. He's saying, and these, these 11 men who are left, they would have been raised in faithful Jewish houses. They would have studied the Old Testament. They knew it. If you said, where is your ultimate hope? Where is your ultimate trust? What would they have said? Our ultimate trust is in Yahweh, Jehovah, the Lord. Do you understand what Jesus is saying to them in this moment? He's saying to them that the way that you and your ancestors for generations have trusted in Jehovah, the Lord, he says you can put the, that very same confidence where? In me. That's a bold statement. This isn't just a, you know, you, you believe in God, well, believe in Jesus too. No, this is saying the, way, the confidence that you have always put in the eternal creator, Jesus says, put that right here in me. And the disciples there, this is a revelation moment for them. There have been a few of these along the way. But it's a moment where Jesus is saying, and, and this would be later explained by one of the apostles when he says that, speaking of Jesus, in him, in Jesus, dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. There in a bodily form. If you, if, and, and we shouldn't just assume that everyone in this culture today knows who Jesus is. Or knows who the man, the, the historical figure, Jesus Christ, who he claimed to be. There he was in a human body claiming to be God the creator in human form. And so he says, you have trusted God. Who do you believe in? Where is your hope? And this is a, this is a powerful moment for the disciples where they are coming to realize exactly who Jesus is. But because of that, because ultimate hope is found in Jesus, because he is the creator, he gives some eternal promises. And said in, in the other verses we read, verses 2 down through verse number 3, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. There's many mansions in my father's house. Verse number 2, in my father's house are many mansions. Now, the idea of a mansion, would it's not your, it's not your um, modern concept of a, um, of a huge house that like a celebrity or very wealthy person would live in. There's, a, there's an ancient concept here of what would take place. And in this ancient concept, the, what would happen is a young man would be, would be preparing for his wedding. And he would have uh, been espoused or engaged to a young woman. And during that engagement period, he would go back to his father's house. And he would build an addition to the father's house. Remember, in Hebrew culture, the inheritance was very significant. 
especially for the firstborn. Eventually, this whole property and this whole inheritance would belong to him. And in the meantime, while his parents lived, he would share the home, and he would build what's translated here the mansion, the addition to the home that's connected to the father's house, and the groom would prepare that place for his bride. And so that's what they would have understood when he said that. And Jesus says to them, I'm going back to the Father. But when I go back to the Father, I will be preparing a place for you. I'm preparing a place for you. Now, I, I, I don't know this for sure, but let me, let me offer a, a, a possible interpretation here. I go to prepare a place for you. What do you think Jesus meant, I'm preparing a place? Do you think that, like, he's up there right now, getting it ready, swinging the hammer, you know, decorating a little bit? Like, well, it's not quite finished yet. Not quite finished yet. I, and when I was a kid, I kind of had that idea, like, not, not exactly like that, but I had the idea that, you know, Jesus is getting the mansion ready right now. He's getting the mansion ready. I'm going to propose to you this interpretation when Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you, it was his preparation was the work that he was about to do on the cross and the offering of his blood. That Jesus, by going to the cross, by shedding his blood, by doing the work that needed to be done, he prepared a place for us. And my place in heaven, the evangelist uh, Ray Comfort like to ask people this question. He would say, if you were to die today and say God and God were to look at you and say, why should I let you into heaven? If the, the answer should be nothing that I've done, only what Jesus has done. And if you, if you were to make your way to those pearly gates, and I know we're speaking figuratively, but you were to find yourself there. And yes, I believe there's a mansion in there with my name on it. And it's not because I prepared the place for myself. It's not by any works that I've done, but it's because Jesus went to the cross and he paid the price for that mansion that awaits me in glory. I go to prepare a place for you, Jesus says. And that's what he did. It would cost him everything. It's the most expensive project that's ever been undertaken. Jesus paid for our eternal home with his death and his powerful resurrection. These are eternal promises. If it were not so, I would have told you. In other words, if it were not so, I would have told you. If there was no hope, don't you think I would have warned you? Don't you think you would have known? But I'm going to prepare a place for you. I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now, we'll transition it says in verse number four, Jesus said, the place that I'm going, you know about it, and you know how to get there. That's interesting, isn't it? Because Thomas, who is known, anybody know his nickname? We re, we, we've referred to him for years as what? Doubting Thomas. I, isn't it gracious of the Lord to give us an example of someone who wasn't some big champion of faith. He had doubts. He had questions. You don't have to come to Christ. You don't have to come to Christ saying, 
saying, well, I've just got it all figured out. I understand it all. Thomas had to wrestle with some doubts. He had to wrestle with some uncertainties. And he says, Lord, verse number five, Thomas says, remember, Jesus said, you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. Thomas is like, uh, don't think so. <laughs> Not so sure about that. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And how could we possibly know how to get there? We don't know. And Jesus, I believe, patiently looks at him and he says to Thomas, I am the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. We, we don't know where you're going. See, see Thomas, Thomas is thinking too literally. Thomas is thinking too, too physically about, a, about a, a physical place in this world, but Jesus wants his spiritual eyes to be open. And he says, Thomas, pay attention a little more. You do know the way. The way, Jesus says, is through me. It's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also, and from henceforth ye know him and have what? That's a powerful revelation right there, isn't it? All right, we'll have to come back to it in a second, though. So back up. Back up to verse number four, six. Verse six, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth. You see, Thomas has a big question. Thomas has a big question. He says, Lord, I'm just having a hard time with this. How? I don't know how to get there. I don't know where you're going. I need to know more. And you know, I think about Thomas and his doubts and his uncertainties. You know, there are big questions that face our world today, aren't there? And what do people do with their big questions often? Well, I'll tell you one thing people do with their big questions is they suppress them. They suppress them. They put them, they put them away. You say, what do you mean? Big questions. How did I get here? I mean, what do you mean here? I, I moved here. No, no. Like, how did I get here in this world? What is my purpose in this universe? What happens to me when I die? These are big questions existential questions, as people would say. Big questions. And how does our world deal with them? Well, not very well. In fact, I've shared this with you before, but I think it's worth repeating. If you go to school, you go to kindergarten, you go to, to early elementary school, and you, you get your coloring book, and you write a page, and you write words like, I am special. And your teacher says, yes, you are. Maybe you still got that uh, picture framed somewhere in your house. You know, I am special, right? And they t- you can do anything. You can be it. You are important. You matter. You are special. But then you get to about, you know, I don't know when it is. I'm not an academic guy. But maybe you get around fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade. And then you go to biology class. And I'm special gets traded with the statement, well, you realize that we all ended up here by accident, that there was just this random explosion in the universe, and you now are whirling through space, 
and it's all just going to blow up when the sun, you know, takes over the earth someday anyway. But you're special. Your life matters. Is it any wonder that, among, and among other causes, today our young people have the highest rates of depression, anxiety, and mental illness that they've ever had in history? Why? Because our culture has lost the source of true meaning. You cannot tell someone, you cannot tell someone that they are a, a collection of randomly evolved molecules hurling through the galaxies, going into oblivion, and then at the same time expect them to find meaning and purpose for their lives. So what do people do with these realities? How do they deal with them? Well, most people just suppress them. They just don't think about it until tragedy happens, until fear grips their hearts, until someone dies, and then they're forced to come into the reality, well, what about these big questions? What about these uncertainties? But until then, I'll, I can suppress it with, with a party or money or a vacation or uh, you know, watching a ball game. I can, I can just put it over here, just a good time with my family, a good time with my friends, and I just won't think about the difficult questions, won't think about the difficult questions. But someday they ultimately raise their head again. And then how do we answer them? Well, Jesus gives us the ultimate meaning of life. There is no basis to say, listen, there is no basis to say you are special, your life has meaning, unless you were placed here by a loving creator who has a purpose for your life. And Jesus came to reveal that to us. Jesus said, I am not just the way. You see, Thomas wanted to know the way, but Jesus gives him more of an answer than he's even looking for. Thomas says, Jesus, well, how do we get there? How do we know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. But that's not all. I am the way I am the truth, and I am the life. Any claim, any claim that anyone ever makes, because of my relationship with Jesus, I just take this for granted. I should not. But anything I hear in a class, on the news, at work, anything I hear goes through the framework of Jesus Christ. Because there is no truth that is not in line with the truth of who Jesus is, what he has said. And he's revealed himself to me in his word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. But then he makes an exclusive claim. And that exclusive claim is at the end of verse number six. Look what it says. It says, no one. No man cometh unto the Father except how? Through me except by me. This is the exclusive claim of Jesus Christ. This is what the world struggles with the most. You see, it's okay to, to sing some songs about Jesus. It's okay to come with other friends who believe in Jesus and talk about it. It's okay to love your neighbor as yourself. It's okay. But what's not okay from the world's perspective is when you say there is no way to heaven except through Jesus Christ. And we, as people called to be alive in this day, in this generation, we have to have the courage and the boldness and the faith to say there is no other way but through Jesus. 
There is no religion that can give you eternal life. There is no prophet that can give you eternal life. There's no education. There's no system of thought. There is one way for you and I to live forever. And that's if our faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, our Savior. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The only answer. Jesus gives an ultimate hope, and Jesus gives us ultimate meaning. But then, look at the last section. There is ultimate evidence. Now, I love this. There are many people who would say, well, this all sounds great. Like, who wouldn't want an answer for all the troubles in the world? Right? I mean, when, with, with, with death and, and disease and, and problems... Who wouldn't want there to be an answer? Who wouldn't want there to be hope? But they say, but you know what? I just can't believe in Jesus. I'd like to, but I just can't believe. And in their mind, Jesus is like Santa Claus or some other fairy tale. And they think, well, it sounds good, but truly logical thinking people don't believe in this, do they? Well, what Jesus does and what the apostles would do in the founding of Christianity is they would consistently appeal to people to make reasonable, informed decisions about who Jesus is. And Jesus is about to do that. That it is not unreasonable. In fact, it is more than reasonable to examine the life and the claims of Jesus, it is more than reasonable to examine the historical record of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's more than reasonable to conclude that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus never says, hey guys, just take a blind leap of faith. Just defy your rational mind. Who gave us our rational mind? God did. Well, I'm getting ahead of the passage. Look what takes place. Verse number 8. Actually, you've got to back up to verse 7. I'm sorry, because verse 7 sets it up. Here's this powerful truth claim from Jesus. If ye had known me, ye should have known my Father also. And from henceforth ye know him and have seen him. Now, Philip says in verse 8, so first we've seen Thomas, now we go to Philip. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and it, it sufficeth us. In other words, okay, that's all we need now. Jesus, there's just one thing left. Just need you to do one thing. How many of you ever heard somebody say, well, if there's a God, then tell him to write his name in the cloud right now. How many of you had somebody say something to that effect to you before, right? Like, yeah, that's true. Philip says, well, Jesus, just, like, if, 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 if you can show us God, show him to us right now, and that'll be enough. Jesus says in verse number nine, have I been so long time with you, and you don't realize who I am, Philip? He that has seen me has seen who? the Father. How sayest thou then, show us the Father? Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Why did Jesus come to this earth? To show us who God is. His 
taking on the form of humanity would be so that every person could see God for themselves. You see, God, the Father, is a spirit. But God, the Son, is physically embodied in human form for us to see him. Verse number 10. Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me, that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Or else, believe me for the very work's sake. There's two, two pieces of evidence that Jesus gives them. Two pieces of evidence that Jesus provides to say, I am God, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. First of all, he, he gives his very words to them. He presents them with powerful words. He said back in verse number 10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the who? But the Father. The words, the words that I gave are not human words. The words that originated in eternity past between the Father and Son. Jesus says, I'm not speaking human words, I'm speaking divine words. One of the best things you can do, if you would say, boy, I'm just struggling to, you know, there's so many skeptics around us. There's so many people that deny who Jesus is. I just don't know if I can believe. One of the most important things you can do is simply read the words that he spoke. Because as was said in his day, and many people have found to be true today, is that Jesus taught like no one else. It says, it's recorded that he spoke with authority. There have been many a person, there's been many a person who's read the words of Jesus and God has spoken to their hearts to reveal that these are powerful words. These are not words that have been, that are spoken by a regular human being. The first thing Jesus says is the words that I said to you. Jesus doesn't leave it there though. He gives them a second option. He said in the end of verse 10 that the Father that dwells in me, he does these works. What does he mean, the works? So first we see the words, then we see the works. The words would be the teachings of Jesus. The works would obviously be the actions, the miracles, the miracles that he did. You'd say, well, I don't know. I just, I just don't know if I can believe in miracles. I just don't know if I can. Well, if you would examine the fact that there are four ancient historical records with thousands of eyewitnesses recorded as saying they had seen a man named Jesus do things that no one else could do. You see, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not just the Bible. They're historical documents that have survived 2,000 years. And as people have looked at those documents, there is, you provide me another, another explanation for how Christianity started, if not for the supernatural works of this man named Jesus. Jesus says, listen, look at verse number 11. Believe me, that I am in the Father, 
and the Father in me. But he's like, if you can't take my, if you can't take my word for it, take my works for it. He says, look at what I've done. At least believe because of what you've seen. The, the, the miracles of Jesus, and obviously the ultimate miracle of Christ is what? What is the ultimate miracle of Jesus? The resurrection. The resurrection. You cannot study the history, and you cannot escape the fact, you cannot escape the fact that all of the early believers in Christianity firmly believed that he rose from the dead. Whether you want to dispute, you, there's a whole other argument to dispute their record, but you cannot deny, it's almost universally accepted that the early Christians at least believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And we have their record. Now, I, I don't, the, the purpose of this message isn't to unpack all of the evidence. We can, I can get you resources for that. I can point you to good books and good talks that discuss the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I'm simply here to, to provoke thought and to, uh, um, to explain this passage that Jesus says, you should look at the word, you should listen to the words I said, but you should also look at the works that I've done. Because what I said and what I did point to the reality that I am equal with the Father. You say, well, why does he take so much time on this, and why are we taking so much time on this? Because let not your heart be troubled means nothing if Jesus isn't God. It means nothing. If he's just like us, let not your heart be troubled means absolutely nothing. But because he makes such an important claim, he backs it up. But not only does he point us to the words and the works that prove, powerful words proving works, but thirdly, he invites us into a personal relationship. Verse 12, verily, 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 he says, he's used that before, that, that truly, truly, that's, they, as I mentioned, they didn't have exclamation points in the language, but they would use repetition. In other words, hey, listen up. This is important. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me, the works that I do, he shall do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now the point is this, he's going to empower those disciples to do great works. The church is going to be birthed by the miraculous workings of the disciples because they believe in Jesus. That's the immediate context. And it says, and whatsoever, verse 13, and whatsoever, verse 13, let's back up one, ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if ye shall ask anything in my name, I will what? Do it. Now, I believe the context of this passage has been abused often. This is, I don't believe this is a promise to every single Christian that has ever lived that can say that, well, 
God, I want you to do this, and he'll do it. God, I want you to do that, and you'll do it. Well, God, I'm asking you to do it. You said that. He's speaking to his disciples. He's, he's getting ready to commission them. The apostles have a special dispensation of power that was given to them by Jesus. But he did tell them this. He says, you're going to know that I am with you because I am going to give you power. I am going to answer your prayers. I am going to, I am going to do miracles through you. In a, it's going to be through you personally, Simon Peter. It's going to be through you, Doubting Thomas. It's going to be through you, Unbelieving Philip. It's going to happen in you. And while you and I have not, do not have the same experience that the apostles had, you and I do have access to that same personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And there are many people who've been convinced about the reality of Jesus, not because of the historical evidence, not because of, of all that, but because they experienced the personal transforming power of Jesus in their lives. I just happened to come across an interview that was done in 1977-1978. Uh, I don't know how many of you have seen, but there have been uh, this, this movie, Jesus Revolution, has been out. I, I don't know if anybody got to see that, but it's talk, it talks a lot about what happened in California in the 1960s and 70s and, and uh, Chuck Smith and the revival that took place there. But there's a man that, was, that came out of that movement named uh, Keith Green. He's a musician. How many, anybody remember him back in the day? A few of you remember Keith Green. He would go on to die in a plane crash, um, but he, God used him mightily, and I just happened to see snippets of an interview that somebody shared this week. And he, he's sitting down there in the studios, you know, full 1970s hair and garb, the whole get-up, it's classic stuff. And he's talking, he said, you know, and I'm going to paraphrase because I didn't memorize it, obviously. But he said, you know, I didn't examine the evidence of the, of the gospel records and all of that. Not that there'd be anything wrong with that, was his point. But he said, but you know what? Jesus changed my life, he said. He said, Jesus changed my life. Now, for people like that, it's good to know that there's historical, rational arguments, right? But there's nobody who's been rationally convinced. It takes the, the supernatural, personal working of the Holy Spirit that God speaks to our heart. We read and listen to the words of Jesus like this. And there's something. And in fact, Jesus is going to talk about it when he gets down a little bit further in this chapter. That there's someone called the Holy Ghost. There's someone called the Holy Spirit. And when we hear the message of Jesus, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and says, Yes, believe in him. Yes, he is the way. How many of you remember when you got saved? And you remember that it was inescapable in that moment. That the truth was there. Whatever way, however God brought you there, there was something supernatural happening. That God drawing you to himself. Revealing to you who Jesus is. And because of that truth of who Christ is. Because of who Jesus is. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in him. There's hope in Jesus. There's safety in Jesus. But no man comes to the Father except through Jesus. 
So I like to always bring my messages down to two questions at the end. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? Has there been a time in your life where you said, wait a minute, I never will make it to heaven on my own, but I believe that Jesus died for me. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead for me. And Jesus, I want you to be my Savior. Has that moment ever happened? Last week, we baptized a young lady who gave testimony that God was speaking to her heart. She was starting to believe, starting to believe, but God brought her in a church service right here, right in this room. God brought her to that point of decision where she said, yes, today's the day I put my faith in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. So whether you're here in this room or whether you're watching this video, have you ever made the decision to see Jesus for who he is and ask him into your life? Put your faith in him. If you die without Jesus, you go into an eternity lost. It's two destinations, heaven and hell. Jesus said he was the only way to heaven. Would you put your faith in him today? The second question is for Christians who have done that. Are you letting the troubles trouble you? Are you letting the troubles trouble you? Or is it time maybe this morning you need to say, wait a minute, Jesus, because of who you are, you've already overcome all of that. Jesus, calm my troubled soul, calm my heart. When we go to prayer in just a minute, maybe you need to pray that. Maybe you need to cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. The disciples were about to face some troubling realities, but Jesus said they didn't have to be troubled inside. So this is the part of the service where we reflect on what we've heard from the Bible and we respond. So we're going to have a time of prayer. So would you please bow your heads with me and would you please close your eyes? Just a still moment in here for us to think and us to pray. So I'm going to ask the first question once more. Has there been a time in your life that you have received Christ as your Savior? If you're not sure, why don't you make that decision today? Say, Ethan, I'm not sure. If I were to die today, I don't know if I'm saved. I don't know if, if I've ever trusted Jesus, but I'm ready today. I want to make sure today. Well, if that's you, would you pray something like this? If in your heart, there's no prayer that can save you, but if in your heart you are ready to put your faith in Christ, pray something like this. Say, dear God, dear God, I know that I am a sinner. I know that I am lost without you. But Jesus, I believe in you. I believe that you died for my sins, and I believe that you rose from the dead. I put all my faith in you. Please save me. I put all my faith in you. Please save me. If you did that from an honest heart this morning, the Bible says that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whether you're in this room or you're watching, if you prayed something like that and you called on Jesus, you said, Jesus, my faith is in you and you alone. The Bible says you're saved. You belong to Christ. If you did that this morning, I'd encourage you to let someone know. 
If you're here, tell me after the service, say, today I put my faith in Christ. If you're watching online, send us a message. Today I put my faith in Christ. Christian, what about you? What is the trouble that you've allowed to take over? You believe in God, believe also in me, Jesus says. Let not your heart be troubled. This is an opportunity for you to pray. As the piano plays, let the Lord speak to your heart. Lord, we thank you so much for the word that we have. Jesus, we thank you that we have you. I pray that we would, we would just grab a hold of you today, that we'd realize that you're not a, a concept or a philosophy or religion, but that, Jesus, you are real, that you're here with us. You deserve so much glory. You deserve so much praise. You prepared the place for us. You give us hope. But I pray that this last song, Lord, I pray that we would just worship you. God, help us to just give glory and thanks and honor and blessing to your holy name. Pray that all who observe, Lord, what's taking place right now would know that, Lord, this is a place we are a people who seek to honor Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.